Today we'll be looking at uh, uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, I have a confession to make. This is a passage I've gone to many times uh, for myself. I've also preached through it many times, because, and I find it helpful. So without apology, I'm going to a familiar passage for me. Uh, this is Luke 7. We'll be toward the end of the chapter in verse 36 and following. And as you're turning, I want to give you a quick reason I believe this passage has really defined uh, a large section of my life uh, for so many years. When uh, I grew up in the 60s, uh, and some of you are old enough to remember that time, uh, it was fairly tumultuous. Within our nation, we had uh, internal terrorists, uh, weathermen, others blowing up college campuses. We had uh, Kent State when I was in high school. Uh, college students shot dead by National Guards as they were protesting the war. Uh, we also had the rise uh, of uh, an interest in drugs led by folks like Timothy Leary, uh, who felt like uh, people should experiment with hallucinogens like LSD. We had uh, all sorts of social turmoil that we were navigating. <clears throat> Oddly enough, my family took a family vacation. My dad was a doctor. He decided to go to a medical uh, convention in San Francisco. And would you believe that we were actually driving up the road during the summer of love into San Francisco, hippies on both sides of the road, uh, uh, and our hotel was a block from Haight-Ashbury. <laughs> and my parents were so clueless, they just gave us money and said, you know, we're going to this convention. Y'all need to take care of yourselves. And it was like, wow, <clears throat> how does this happen? Uh, so uh, uh, even though I was raised by very faithful parents, uh, uh, Dad was on the local board of Campus Crusade, a physician. We had Bible studies in our home uh, weekly back when that was not really done in, in our sector. Uh, my grandfather, once a month, would have the extended family gather on a Thursday night, and he would teach from the Bible uh, to aunts and uncles and cousins. He was a fun and interesting Bible teacher, a little scary. <clears throat> uh, he was a circuit court judge, and a lot of his material would come from Daniel, <laughs> you know, and involved animals and statues and things falling over and feet separated apart, and maybe some of you were raised in a dispensational background, you know what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, uh, so I was steeped in the church, and we didn't just go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, training uh, union at the Baptist church, uh, uh, then a choir, youth choir, and then on Wednesday night, and uh, Saturday morning for prayer breakfast, and when we took a vacation, our vacation was to a missions conference in North Carolina. So I was raised in the church. At age 15, uh, by my request, I was sent to, an, uh, to a military preparatory school in Chattanooga, uh, Baylor Military Academy. At the, at the time, it's no longer military, but 
I was there for the last two years. It was a military school. And at Baylor, uh, I found that my parent I, I did in high school what a lot of people do in college. And as I got away from my parents, I found out that my uh, religion was about that deep, that I had ridden on my parents' faith, but I didn't own it for myself. There had been experiences that were religious, uh, but, but it didn't go very deep in my heart. And, you know, my resistance to uh, all of the crazy things that was going around well, uh, was zero. The first time someone said, would you like to take dope? I said, sure. I mean, there wasn't even, there wasn't even this internal wrestling like, is this something? I, it was like, yeah, sure, let's try that. You know, <laughs> off you go. And uh, by the time I returned home for my senior year in high school for various reasons, uh, I was, I was in a place in my life where, although I still attended church and kept an external facade, the, the strain of that exterior versus the hidden life that I was living was really hard. Uh, and I remember waking up to shave and get ready for school at age 18 and hating looking at myself in the mirror. And I was reading the existential philosophers of the day, Sartre, Camus, uh, their predecessors, Nietzsche. And uh, my heart was filled with despair. Uh, and I remember thinking very clearly on more than one occasion uh, that ending my life felt like a reasonable option. And the philosophers actually supported that. Oddly enough, if you go back and read them, that would have been a, a, a good faith decision. I actually had a friend do that. And so I, I went to a, wanted to date a girl. She was scared to death of me, I think. And she would only date me if I took her to church, so, you know, I did church, you know. I uh, took her to church, and we attended a weekend event in December of 1970. And uh, that December, uh, Howard Borland stood up in front of a group of college and high school people and said, look, I prepared a sermon, but uh, instead I'm just going to read through this tract. He reached his pocket and he pulled out the four laws, and I thought, oh, no, not again. And he just really read through the tract. It took him about seven or eight minutes. <clears throat> Friday night, uh, he said, uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, let me pray for us. And he sat down, and I got ready to go up, and nobody in the room moved. I sat back down and I thought, did I miss something? And spontaneously, someone broke out in tears. And another person began to cry. And I began to think, 
Oh, no. <laughs> and then one by one, they stood. Some where they were, some down, went down front and began to confess sin and ask for prayer. And I thought, you know, I have survived just as I am about a million times. I have survived two Billy Graham <laughs> conferences. I've made it through a million four-law presentations. And if I just sit here long enough, two hours later, I thought, if I don't stand up, this will never end. <laughs> and so I, I did. I stood and confessed my sin. And I remember what I prayed, God, if you're there, please help me. I mean, not, not a real deep prayer. It's all I can muster. And I remember feeling the weight of my sin and despair lift off of me. And I went to bed thinking, could this be real? I hope it is. I want it to be. And waking up the next morning and thinking, did it go away? And opening my Bible and for the first time, hearing God use Scripture to speak to me and he set my heart free. And I was a dangerous person. <laughs> because uh, I went back to my high school with an obnoxiously large Bible under my arm. I didn't want one of those little pocket New Testaments, you know. What kind of witness is that? Get you a big one. <laughs> and I had a big old cross around my neck. I had a pocket full of four spiritual laws, and if you didn't know Jesus, I was coming after you. I told a friend of mine, I'm a heathen-seeking missile. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, was, I, I found there were six minutes between class. That was meant to find somebody, a minute before uh, to present one of the laws, 30 seconds to pray, and then 30 seconds to get to class. And that's what I was doing. My cousin Susan came up to me and she said, you've got to stop it. I said, what do you mean I've got to stop it? She was a sophomore, I was a senior. She said, you've got to stop it. I can't get a date. I have the same last name as you are and they think you're crazy. So you have to quit it. I said, what am I saying that's so bad? She said, I don't know, but you have to stop it. I said, well, well here, let me, I got this little pamphlet here. And I said, she got so angry, she was jumping up and down. You ever seen somebody hopping mad? She was hopping, man. I just grabbed her arm and just kept on going. <laughs> really? You know. Three months later, Susan came to me and said, I couldn't forget what you said. I didn't throw the tract away. I put it on my dresser. And last night, I finally, after looking at it all that time, pulled it down and prayed to receive Christ. She became a pastor's wife with a very effective ministry. And that early joy and, and foolish, untaught, 
method God used. People noticed and said, you, you ought to go to get some training. So I went to Covenant College, graduated Covenant. They said, you know, taught uh, in the church and in the school. They said, well, you, you might consider seminary. Uh, my pastor, someone I revered, Frank Barker, said, you know, would you consider that? I said, yes. Barbara and I uh, went to seminary, and uh, we left seminary, began to plant churches. We planted a church and a school in Louisiana, uh, actually two schools, went to Mobile, Alabama, planted two churches, and uh, started a homeschool association and <clears throat> 200 families. Um, you know, we were, we were about good work. Our church, a third of our income went to foreign missions. We had a missions conference every year. But if I'm honest with you, somewhere along the way, that original joy left my heart. Now, not completely. God didn't abandon me. I, I still would feel his presence on occasion, and sometimes it would return. I wouldn't know why. I'd go to a conference, and things would kind of lighten up in my heart a little bit, and then I'd, I'd leave the conference, and I could just, it just slowly would leak away. And I'd go back, and I'd read my notes, and I'd read the book that had kind of enlivened me again, and it just didn't do the same thing. <clears throat> like when you get tired of a favorite song. And it doesn't, doesn't mean the same. It was very puzzling. I even developed a terrible theology for that. My theology that I actually taught people was, you know, as you become a Christian, you have this honeymoon period. That's great. What a joy. But when it's over, I'd like to talk to you about duty. discipleship, commitment. So let's talk. You, you see any problem with that? Somehow, things had changed. I want to read this passage with you. Uh, you can read along in your uh, materials or in your Bible. This is Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, he, that's Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house <clears throat> and reclined at table. Now there is a lot in this passage that is uh, odd. Uh, this would be odd to us to lie down to eat, but that was the culture of the day, there'd be a low table. You'd lie down, usually on your left side, your feet angled away from the table, and you'd pull food from a low table to eat, on kind of on pillow bolsters or those kinds of things. Uh, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with a hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. And I want you to know there is nothing culturally appropriate 
or recognizable about any of that. That would be just as weird today as it was then. Well, uh, you know, let's, let's, say, let's say one of you decided, you know, uh, uh, Josiah, out of town, I don't know, you know, he talks about missions and stuff. I'd like to, let, let me, uh, hey, Josiah, why don't you come over to Sunday lunch, and I'd just like to get to know you a little better. So I go over to lunch at your house, and let's say, uh, Doug, Let's say you invited me to lunch. You mind if I use you as an example? Okay. Uh, Doug is actually a supporter of mine. That may end shortly. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I go over to Doug's house, and lovely meal. has a couple of friends, and uh, as I'm sitting at Doug's house, all of a sudden... And Doug goes to the door, and he opens the door, and there's this young woman there. She's too blonde. She's got on a dress that's too tight, too short, too thin, too much. And Doug looks at her and says, I'm a, uh, 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 you know, that's what a good Southern church person says in that situation. I'm, 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 I'm. Uh, can, can I help you? And she says to him, Honey, I'm here to see the preacher. And Doug says, Oh, and she just pushes right by him, comes into the house, walks up to the table where I am, stands behind me, and begins to massage my neck. <laughs> well, about that time, Doug thinks, oh, what is this about? And he, she's massaging my neck, and a minute she starts to cry and whisper in my ear, and she pulls out some cologne <laughs> and puts it all over my head and my neck, and Everybody else watching, I want you to know that whatever anybody was talking about before that happened, just stopped. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, I, I believe the whole room would go silent, you know, and Doug is sitting there, and he's thinking, you know, uh, this doesn't look good. And names of other famous fallen preachers begin to crawl across the screen of his mind, you know. Right? I mean, what are you to think? And so when the Pharisee, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would know, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him because she is a sinner. Now, there's, that word sinner is kind of code word for loose, immoral woman. 
it's, it's not clear that she was a prostitute, but she was famously uh, loose. And, and the Pharisee thinks, you know, how much of a prophet do you need to be to figure this out? Jesus answering said to him, now some people said that's a, a miracle. Jesus knew what Simon was thinking, and maybe it was. I think anybody present would have known what Simon was thinking. <laughs> you, you know, I just don't think it would have been that hard to figure out what Simon was thinking about. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon said, the one, I suppose. Uh one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then he turned to the woman, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. What a remarkable answer. What a remarkable passage. Um, I'd like to take a minute and see if we can, from the passage, build uh, kind of a character analysis of the two people that Jesus was speaking to. All right, so you have Simon, you have the unnamed woman, and let me, let me start you off. This is a real question I'm going to ask you to actually answer. So this is not rhetorical, so you need to be thinking. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to say that Simon, uh, that the woman was bold. She wasn't wanted in that house. She wasn't invited. She came in anyway. I would say that's pretty bold. I would say Simon, to compare him, to compare, was tentative. Why? Even when asked an obvious question, Simon says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. So what else could you say about the woman? What characterizes her? I know it's Saturday morning. Extravagant. Say it again. Extravagant. She was extravagant. I mean, not only extravagant, but creatively extravagant. Flamboyantly extravagant. Simon, he did not even do 
the culturally normal things for Christ because he was stingy by comparison. So think of Simon, think of the woman. How would you characterize either one of them? You have to holler because I have trouble hearing up here. The woman was desperate. Obviously so. Simon was in charge. He was there trying to figure out Jesus, asking questions. What else? Yes, sir. She gave what she had, and who knows how she earned that perfume? Gave it anyway. She was giving Simon did not even give Christ enough uh, water and oil to clean up after being on the road and being dusty. What else? The woman was shameless. She really was. I mean, can you imagine? Doug is still a little red just from the imagination. <laughs> You know, she is shameless, doesn't care who sees her doing it, has a disapproving audience, does it anyway. Simon, by comparison, is very careful. What else do you notice? She was aware. What's that? She was aware, and I'm going to stick more to he was unaware. She was aware, he was unaware, and there is a lot, uh, Jimmy, to that. I'm going to use a different word for his being unaware. He was blind. I use that word because Christ used it of this behavior in other passages. The man was blind. He would have not agreed with you. But I think, why would I say that? You know, if you were a Jew of that era, you would have said, oh, I wish I was like Abraham, where God himself visited Abraham. Oh, I wish I was like Isaiah, where I could have a vision of God from the temple. God himself, in human form, comes to Simon's house, and he never knows it. Not only that, he is so judgmental in his heart that he is making judgments against the only righteous man in the world. Now, when you don't recognize God come to your house, and when you complain about his behavior, you may be blind and judgmental. That's my guess. Maybe just a little judgmental. Maybe just a little blind. And the woman was very aware that in Christ she'd found something different. You know, as I read through this early, I, I actually misread the passage internally. I missed the point that Jesus says I should learn from those two behaviors from the religious man who externally would have been welcomed in a hero, a good neighbor, a man of substance in the community, and this woman who was disreputable. 
And what does Jesus say? He makes a, a bit of an equation. He says, to whom much is forgiven, they love much. So let's make an equation. Forgiven much, what? Forgiven little, Any problems with that exegesis? You know, I would have some people hear me say that and say, oh, well, what I need to do is just sin more. <laughs> then I could be forgiven more. I would love more. Romans 6 says, meganoito in the Greek. May it never be. Shall I sin that grace will abound? May it never be. Why do I know that's true for Simon? The point is this. Simon already had plenty of sin. He didn't need any more. That's not Simon's problem. Simon's problem is not a lack of sin, not a lack of pride or judgmentalness or being blind or being haughty or being careful or being concerned about his reputation. Simon has a pile of sin. They just look different from the woman's. And because they look different, they flew under his radar and left him blind. Simon had tons of sin. He just couldn't see it. So let me ask you another question. This, let, me, let me end the passage. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, the way that I, I said I misread this passage earlier, the way I misread it was, since you have loved me, your sins have obviously been forgiven. You know, that's, that's backwards. I, I'm not proud of that misreading internally. It really was. You know, she obviously... Uh, because she loved him so much, he forgave her. That's completely backwards. The truth is the reverse. He forgave her, and her response was effusive. The forgiveness of her sins led to this remarkable behavior. Let me... I got in trouble doing this one time, so uh, I've been a little, a little hesitant since. But let me ask you, please don't answer. But just think, which would you rather have, a church full of Simons or a church full of people like this woman? You, you kind of see what the obvious answer is, but the implications are a little frightening. <laughs> she obviously had her sins forgiven. Her heart was broken. 
she loved Jesus because she had been forgiven much. She knew that. And she had to find him and brought a gift with her. One that's not required by any law or expectation. The best she had, she brings because she loves Jesus. Why? He forgave her many sins. Do you know what had happened in my life? I had started out looking like that woman. Desperate. Sins forgiven. Joyful. Excited. And do you know who I wound up looking a whole lot more like? The calculated, careful, critical, judgmental, self-righteous Simon. Because the sins that I could see that Christ forgave me of were clear to me. The sins of my religious life flew under my spiritual radar, and I did not own them. Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, love little. What should Simon have done that day? I mean, what should he, sitting in his own house, watching this stuff happen, what should Simon have done? I think there's only one appropriate response for Simon. And that is to get up out of his seat and to walk around behind Christ and to kneel down next to the woman he despised and say to her, move over, honey. Make room for another one. And join her worship at the feet of the one who forgave him. That would have been the response. You know what? He couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to, to do it. And the passage ends with Jesus saying to the woman, go in peace, and we never know Simon's response. Now, I hope that one day I'll meet a brother named Simon in glory. Kind of like my cousin Susan. It just took a while. I hope that's true. But this passage doesn't tell us. And this morning, part of what uh, I have to do again today is to confess my sin. And what is my tendency? At my age and my history, my tendency is to minimize it, to think of the progress I've made, to pray about the missionaries I've sent out, to pray about all these other things and to neglect the present weight of my sin today, which is sufficient for me to be condemned to hell forever if there were no Savior. Do you understand? When you do, when you no longer 
take sin seriously in your life and no longer feel the weight and the pain of the offense of it to God. The cross is a small matter to you. The forgiveness of Christ means little. You do not have to sin more. You already have enough. Now you have a Savior. He has forgiven your sin. But part of what the Christian life is not getting over needing Jesus. It's not something I move past and become immune to because when I was 18, I had a time with Christ. What I'm describing should be the normal course of the spiritual life. How do I know that? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm an old guy, so I still use it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, daily bread, and forgive us our debts. Daily bread, daily debts. Forgive us our sin, our trespasses, our failings as we forgive others. Do you understand? The Christian life continues as it began with the real confession of your present real sin so that you recognize your present need for a Savior and having found forgiveness, your heart is warmed by his love, his care, his sending the Spirit afresh into you so that you have a present testimony about the mercy and grace of your great Savior rather than a historical one 50 years ago. So this morning we've, we've given you some materials so that you can uh, look at them, think through them, uh, and we want to give you time to reflect. I'm going to pray, and in a few minutes... I'll close our reflection time with prayer. Let's pray together. Father, it may be that there is someone here this morning who is like the woman who has never come to you and who wonders, how can I be clean? And Father, I want to thank you that they hear your call to say that Christ died for sinners. Christ came for those without hope. And I pray that they would in in humility, just turn their lives to you. Say, Lord, I, I want you to come into me, to make me who you want me to be, to forgive and to save me for, from my sins, not based on what I have done, but based only on your grace and your work for me on the cross. Lord, I, I pray uh, that if there's someone here who uh, doesn't yet know you, doesn't yet know the mercy and grace that you bring, that you would give them the strength to pray that way. Father, I also pray for my many brothers and sisters who, like me, may find it hard to think of enough sin that needs forgiven. <clears throat> Lord, send your Spirit to open our eyes so that we are no longer blind, 
so that we can call sin, sin, so that we can find again forgiveness in Christ. And having been forgiven, might love him dearly. Lord, be with us as we meditate, pray, think about these things. Lead and guide us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.